may be seated. And as you are, please meet me in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square. Uh, and if you like to um, work ahead, you can also put a pen or a piece of paper or a ribbon in Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be going uh, there this morning as well. Romans chapter 10, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John at the beginning of the Gospels. And you get to Acts, you'll hit Romans. If you're turning in an old school Bible and you hit First and Second Corinthians, go back to the left to Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10. And if you are really studious, you will know that we looked at these exact same two verses last week. And one of my preaching heroes, Martin Lloyd-Jones, preached on these two verses for eight weeks in a row. And so we're just going to do it for two and let you off the hook of the other six that I think would be, you know, really helpful still. But our, our focus last week was on the intimacy of Christ. That often we believe the lie that God is far, but what the gospel teaches us is that our God is a God who is drawn close and by grace remains close to the work uh, of his death, uh, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And today, though, I'd like to shift our attention through these same two verses, a different focus, if you will, not on the intimacy of Christ, but on the authenticity of Christ, on his authenticity. And let's define authenticity this way, because we may be saying, what exactly does that mean? Authenticity is the harmony between the outward and the inward life. A harmony between the outward and the inward life. That is, authenticity is integrity between our behavior and our words, that's the outward life, and our character and our affections, our, our inward life. Let me show you where this comes from, from this particular text, and then we'll set a course for our time together. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 through 10, read this way. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Notice the language, confess with your mouth. That's behavior and words. That's the outward life. What is heard, what is perceived, what's apparent, what's clear when you look at someone's life or when you even consider your own. But also notice the phrase, believe in your heart. And Paul says this a couple of different ways in this passage. That's character and affections. That's the inward life. What is trusted, what is loved, what's foundational and core to your being. See, Paul is saying that harmony between the outward and the inward life is the foundational posture of salvation. Salvation is not simply a matter of what we say, but it, it's also not just about what we think or what we believe. It's all that in harmony with one another. You see, if what I do and say is not wed with who I am and what I love, then I will never truly confess my sin and believe on Jesus. Why? Because I'm not dealing in reality. There's a constant discontinuity between what I am saying and doing externally and what is true in my interior world. See, we have to be honest about our sin and about our Savior in both word and faith. But it's equally necessary for our maturation, or what the scriptures call our sanctification. We have to be honest about our persistentness in our sin and persistent nature of our foolishness. We have to keep confessing, in other words, and have to continue to trust every single day in the enduring love of Jesus. We have to keep believing. If you've been tracking with Jesus longer than half an hour, then you know trusting in Jesus is not a one-time event that then sets you into always trusting him for then, from then on, but rather it's a daily refreshing of your recollection of your spirit. This is why in the Old Testament God keeps saying what? Remember, remember, 
remember, not because we have forgotten cognitively, but because we fail to center our lives on trusting Jesus regularly and daily. See, in order to help us explore and embody this authentic life, let's consider it in three parts. First, we'll look at the outward life, then the inward life, and then look at them in harmony at the authentic life. So we'll look at the outward, the inward, and then the authentic life. Sound good? All right, let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, we could read these words, and something of it may prick our spirit or our interest, but if they are to transform us, we need to go well beyond just reading words on a page. We need your spirit. We need his help to reveal truth. Not only the truth of your word, but even the truth of our hearts where we fail to trust and believe and to center our lives on this truth. Fail to trust and believe in your love. And so I pray for my sisters and brothers. I, I pray for myself. Would your spirit have his way in this moment? That we would not just have good things to apply to our life tomorrow, but that we would leave differently than we showed up. That our hearts would be humbled. That our eyes would be opened. That our ears would be more attentive to your word. It's really wonderful that you do that because we are so desperate for it. We're so desperate that our external life and our interior life find harmony, and we know that is only a work of your grace and your power. So we submit our time to you, we submit ourselves to you, and ask, Father, that as we read your word, your word would read us back, and it would transform us from the inside out. We love you, we thank you so much for this time that we get to reflect upon who you are and what you are like. We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Well, let's begin with the outward life. Again, the outward life is what's perceived, what's heard, what is experienced. And in Romans chapter 10, the outward life is demonstrated through the confession that Jesus is Lord or Jesus' Lordship. And this confession, this outward display is directly associated, Paul says, with our salvation. What we say and do is critical then for understanding what the authentic life is meant to look like and how we are meant to live out an authentic life in Christ. And Paul's teaching is in direct concert with the teachings of Jesus on the outward life. So uh, meet me in Matthew chapter 7. Flip back to the left if you are in Romans still to Matthew chapter 7 verses 15 and following. In, in Matthew, Jesus is going to use this illustration. He's going to talk about a tree. He's going to talk about how his followers are able to discern the authenticity of a person, and namely, a person from him by considering the fruit of their life. Matthew 7 is near the end of Jesus, perhaps one of his most famous, if not the most famous, address or sermon that he had known as the Sermon on the Mount. He walked up this little hill, a bunch of people like sat down around him, and he began to teach them for three different uh, chapters, at least in our record of it here. And here's what he says near the conclusion of that message. Matthew 7, verse 15 through 20. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear uh, good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruit. 
Fruit is a highly common metaphor used throughout the New Testament by writers when they are communicating something or talking about the outward life. Jesus says healthy trees bear what? Good and healthy fruit. Diseased trees bear bad fruit. Followers of Jesus, in other words, bear good fruit, and people who don't follow Jesus bear bad fruit. This is what he's, he's getting at. So the question then, what exactly is the fruit? right? This is one of those spiritual words we throw around a lot. Look at the fruit of their life or the fruit of that particular statement or that address or something like that. So what does the outward life look like? Well, probably the two most important passages that speak about fruit bearing in the scriptures are John 15 and Galatians 5. In John 15, uh, Jesus says, I am the vine, perhaps you've heard this, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. By this, he says in verse 8, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And then in verse 10 in chapter 15, if you keep my commands, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commands and abide in his love. And Jesus says that the outward life proves the authenticity of discipleship. And I think that word prove is really critical and it's a bit uncomfortable as well. It communicates something apparent which is revealed through something, uh, or rather reveals something that is less obvious perhaps for the naked eye or less visible. It's perceptible and definitive, this fruit is. So when we speak of the words, when we speak the words of Jesus and when we obey the words of Jesus, Jesus is saying that's bearing fruit. When you speak what I have spoken, when you do what I have commanded, you bear fruit. More than that, we prove we are with him and that he is us. That's the outward life. And then Paul gets even more granular in Galatians 5 when he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then he says, against such things, there's no law. In other words, if you're looking for an excuse to not live these things out, there's no law. There's no record that you're not supposed to do these things. The outward life, that healthy tree that bears good fruit, is recognized then through these principled behaviors. Seeing a life of love and kindness and faithfulness and self-control, especially in 2022, points to something of authenticity of following Jesus. That's the outward life. And, and it's really important to note, anytime we read Galatians 5, we have to get, again, a little bit specific and granular, if you will, that that word fruit is singular. Not just in English, but in the original Greek grammar as well. It is singular. What's that mean? Why is it important? It means the question is not, which of these things show up in your personality? Which of these things are you good at and which less inclined? You're like, I'm an Enneagram 2. I don't really do the self-controlled thing, right? So it's not about personality, though. Notice this, that Paul is giving us a list of what the fruit is of a life of of a believer, not a bunch of fruits that may or may not show up in the lives of a believer. In other words, to be a follower of Jesus is to experience and to expect and to want to see these things grow all of them in our lives. We can't say, well, I'll be faithful, but gentleness, that just wasn't in the cards for me. If you are a follower of Jesus, that's part of the fruit. Are you with me? This is not only accountability for our own souls, but our brothers and sisters as well. So what's, what's the outward life all about? Let, let's boil it down simply to this. If you are a follower of Jesus, you should look like it. If you are a Christian, 
you should act like it. If you are a believer, you should speak like it. Are you with me? This is essentially what Jesus is communicating in Matthew 7, in John 15, and what Paul is communicating in Romans 10, as well as Galatians 5. Healthy trees bear good fruit. Disciples obey Jesus' commands. Those who are indwelled by the Spirit bear the fruit of the Spirit. Believers confess the lordship of Jesus. Uh, but we don't trust the outward life, do we? We have this very strange relationship with the outward life. After all, we're taught what? You can't judge a book by its what? Cover. You can't judge the inward life by the external display. We've even been taught, so ingrained in us, and I praise God for this, that you are saved by faith, not by works, right? So our skepticism in some respect is really well-founded. We have, I think, both a social and a theological reason why we don't trust the outward life. Socially, people manipulate their visible lives, right? All the time. What we do and say and wear, how we carry ourselves, who we associate with, what brands we buy, right? When somebody gets your brand wrong, you correct them real quick. It's not that. It's this. Let me tell you, it wasn't 10 bucks. It was 200. I know I could have saved the money, but I couldn't have had this conversation without dropping that much, right? We, we have a way of cultivating this outward life that tells a story about us, which may or may not be true of our inward life. This happens in real life, but of course it happens online too. I don't know if you've ever noticed. Sometimes it's purposeful. Sometimes we do it without even realize, realizing that we're doing it, communicating something externally that is not true out of self-protection. However, at the same time, as all of this is true, maybe this more purposeful or even unwitting manipulation, at the same time, we know it's really not polite or helpful to make a value assessment on somebody simply by viewing their external or visible life, right? This is really complex. We have to be very careful because we have this very complicated relationship with the outward life. We give so much attention to how we look and how we are perceived, yet we know what is discernible never tells the full story. And even after, like, I don't know, 80 years in COVID, however long it's been, I still look at myself on Zoom all the time and just see, does he look good today? Is he on point? Does, what does it look like when people look at him, right? I wish I could tell you there's no vanity in me. In 2022, two years into this thing, I'm more vain than I ever thought I was. That's scary. That's scary that I'm trying to communicate something visibly and perceptibly that maybe I'm trying to cover up something inwardly that I'm ashamed about or uncertain about or uncomfortable about. We have a very challenging relationship with the outward life. That's socially, which ultimately I think this complexity is rooted in a lack of fully understanding who we are. So if I'm not totally grounded in who I am, or I'm not really sure of who I am, I'm going to curate and speak and broadcast something that I have more control over when I can't totally understand what's going on inwardly. Theologically, many of us have been taught that the outward life, in some respects, is sort of irrelevant to salvation and our moral formation. Paul even reminded the Ephesian church in chapter 2 that for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one can do what? boast, right? We praise God for that. We praise God. It's, it's pretty clear, I think, there that the outward life does not save you. Our behaviors and our words actually just reveal our need for salvation. They do not possess the power of salvation. 
However, aren't we really good at this? We'll quote those two things, but we won't read it in context. If you keep reading about this, in the very next verse in Ephesians 2, hear what Paul says. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We may not be saved through our good works, but we have been created for good works. Ultimately, this is rooted in understanding that we are saved by the lordship of Jesus, not by our good works, and yet we are called to live lives in accordance with the lordship of Jesus for good works. But our, I think our social and theological distrust is nevertheless warranted. We've been burned, haven't we? We particularly live in an age where the evangelical and American church is having to face up to a lot of posturing, a lot of breaking of the commandment of bearing false witness. In other words, of giving a semblance, a picture of righteousness, but when we peel back the layers, it's like whitewashed tombs that Jesus talked about. And so we may be very susceptible to believe that the outward life is the problem, but what the scriptures teach us is that the outward life is not the problem, rather a misalignment or a lack of harmony with the inward life is the issue. You see, I think we are all craving something within us and something within our community, which is simply authenticity. That's what Paul is getting at. In Romans 10, Paul finds it impossible to conceive of a faith, of an authentic life in Christ, which is not demonstrated through verbal and visible confession. We must confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. In other words, the seen proves the unseen. The outward life tells a story, but it doesn't tell the whole story. We must look also at the private world within our hearts, because I think this is really where a lot of the unsettling takes place. After all, because of common grace and the image of God, many people who don't know God still do incredibly wonderful, loving, and compassionate and generous things. And in a strange way, moral people and the hypocritical person all show signs of a healthy tree on the outside. And so we have to discern what exactly is going on inwardly. So how do we do that? How do we discern the authentic life? Well, as Jesus continues his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, I think he explains the vital nature of the inward life. And quite frankly, it's really alarming. So look again at Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 this time. Matthew 7, verse 21. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then he, Jesus, will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is pretty alarming, isn't it? Jesus is saying at the final judgment, people will point to their outward life. What they said, Lord, Lord, what they did. They prophesied, they cast out demons, they did mighty good works. I'm not going to be able to say any of those things in the age to come. I don't know about you, but when Jesus, I'm not going to say, I prophesied something and I cast out a bunch of demons, right? This just, this seems pretty spectacular that this is the kind of power these people possess. And Jesus doesn't say, no, you didn't. Notice that? 
He's not saying you didn't do those things or you didn't say those things. He's not questioning their outward life. What does he say? When they claim an entitlement to the kingdom, that they are a good and healthy tree, that they are saved, that they are righteous, how does Jesus respond? Jesus explains in a pretty shocking fashion that many who cultivate a seemingly good and even religious and moral exterior, an outward life, will be turned away in the age to come. Why? Well, because Jesus says, I never knew you. I never knew you. In other words, your behaviors and your words were not rooted in the right character and affections. And most importantly, they were not rooted in the right relationship. I never knew you. The outward life tells a story, but it doesn't tell the whole story. See, for many of Paul's first century Roman readers, we've been exploring the past few weeks, the temptation was to develop an outward life that told a story about themselves, about their own righteousness. Remember, that's what Paul said at the start of this chapter, perfectly in line with Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Romans 10, verse 2 through 3 says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So they have passion, they even have obedience, but what don't they have? Knowledge. They didn't know him and Jesus' words, he didn't know them. They don't know God. In other words, they were being inauthentic. Their outward life was not in harmony with their inward life. And so Paul writes in verse 5 of chapter 10, sort of an exposition, if you will, of Deuteronomy 30. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. In, in other words, a righteousness based on the law is a one-dimensional life. It's the outward life with no integrity. It's a life which behaves and has good words and it may even seem true, but they are not rooted in the soil of a good and true heart. They are not based upon a real righteousness. They are not centered on God himself. And therefore, getting to the heart of verses 9 and 10, these things are not salvific. This, is, this ought to be very scary to us at some level. Let me, let me just scare you and then give you peace. It should be a little bit terrifying because it means that your actions are not unimpeachable. So even, let's bring it down, when your friends are asking you about your heart, you can't go, well, didn't I help you? Didn't I show up to move, which is like the millennial way of saying, like, I have sacrificial love for you, right? That I show up and help you move? Because we just move so much, is what I'm getting at. And as an elder millennial, I would just say, like, yeah, this is something we've got to really help each other with at the same time. Like, we, anyway, I digress. We can't look at our, our actions and say that they are unimpeachable. What Jesus is constantly doing is saying, are they connected to a genuine heart? Are they connected to a genuine affection? And so even for ourselves, Jeremiah teaches us that the heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. That means that my actions may not always include my heart. I might be doing things for you like preaching a sermon so that you will love me and not love the Lord. So the sermon is not even unimpeachable. To say we are even gathered in his name, Jesus is like, you said, Lord, Lord, away from me, I never knew you. That's really shocking. See, the whole point of John 15 is that good fruit comes from an abiding and loving relationship with the Lord. He says in verse 9 of John 15, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And so what's the encouragement? Abide in my love. 
So the question is not look at my actions, but are my actions, are they, are they grounded? Are they in harmony with my abiding heart and trusting the Lord? See, yes, healthy trees bear good fruit, but trees are only healthy when they are abiding and are, remain rooted in healthy soil. And to put it more pointedly, good behavior and good works are only truly good when they are grounded in love. When they are established in good character and affections. That is the outward life springs from an inward life that is authentically rooted in Jesus. This is really why we need each other. Because honestly, I don't always know when my heart is rooted in Jesus. I need you to ask me questions. I need to ask you questions. I need to give you an observation of what I'm seeing from you. You need to give me an observation of what you're seeing of me. This is the people of God learning to abide together because every single day we are told to do more, say more, hustle, and make your authentic life happen. And Jesus is saying, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Abide in me. Similarly, when we look at Galatians 5, the whole point of the fruit of the Spirit is that it comes from the Spirit. It comes from Him. If you live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. The outward life of self-control, of gentleness, and of all of these aspects of the fruit of the Spirit come from an inward life, which Paul says is by the Spirit and is in step with the Spirit. That is, the outward life springs forth from an inward life that is anchored in the Spirit of God. That's authenticity. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 10. For if with the heart, rather, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth confesses and is saved. The confession of the mouth of the outward life and the belief of the heart, the inward life that Jesus is Lord, leads to a genuine and real salvation and maturation in the Lord. That's authenticity. Remember, Paul finds it impossible to conceive of a faith or an authentic life in Christ, which is not demonstrated verbally and visibly. But in the same breath, he finds it equally impossible to conceive of a confession or of an articulation that Jesus is Lord, which is not rooted in a heart-level trust and belief that Jesus actually is Lord. In other words, we must confess what we believe, and we must believe what we confess. The outward and inward life must find harmony. In her book, The Gift of Imperfection, speaker and researcher Brene Brown says authenticity is a collection of choices that we have to make every day. It's about the choice to show up and be real, the choice to be honest, the choice to let our true selves be seen. In other words, authenticity is not about personality. It's about humility and honesty. As Brown says, it's about being real. There are not those who are blessed with authenticity and those for whom it eludes. No one is naturally authentic, yet we all crave authenticity. We are all, by sinful nature, prone to curate our image, to live differently inwardly and externally for a particular gain or a particular reason. Sometimes... The chasm is actually so mysterious and severe, we don't even see it ourselves. We don't see the disparity between our outward and our inward life. But what this all reveals to us is that this authenticity is a daily discipline. It's also how we know that we cannot be authentic on our own. We need a new heart. We need a new word. 
We need someone who is actually truly authentic to come into our lives. How can we bring harmony between the inward life and the outward life? Is it by saying more? Is it by doing more? Is it by meditating more? Is it by being more centered? We can't do it. The good news of the gospel is someone already has. Someone has already brought full and complete harmony to the inward and outward life. This is the beauty and revelation of the incarnation. Quite literally, Jesus is the visible representation of the invisible God. Paul tells us in Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That is, he is the harmony between worlds unseen and seen. He is literally the union between the inward and the outward life. That's why we say that he is the word of God, what is unseen, made flesh, what is seen. John explains the birth of Jesus Christ this way. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father full of grace and truth. Notice that language. We have seen his glory. We didn't just conjure it in our minds. We didn't just feel it. We saw it. Think about that. The glory of God is about his prestige, his honor, his power, his love. It's his truth and beauty, as one preacher says, going public. Jesus is the invisible made visible. Jesus is the word made flesh. Jesus is the inward life clearly perceived. Jesus is the outward life perfectly rooted. Jesus is the authentic one, the integrity one, the faithful one, the one who is in harmony, the one who has full power, full love, the embodiment of beauty and truth. Jesus is the personification of wisdom. He's the embodiment of hope. He is the joy of God in the flesh. Jesus is the incarnation of love. Jesus is the glory of God, clearly perceived. Jesus is the genuine, real deal, authentic revelation of God himself. He is the outward and inward life on perfect display. Are you with me yet? He's what we've been waiting for. See, between the Father and the incarnate Son, we are told over and over again, there is perfect harmony, symmetry, and fidelity. That's why Jesus said of himself, if you've seen me, you've seen who? The Father. Seeing me is seeing the Father. Because there's integrity here. There's harmony here. There's consistency here. There is no disparity or disagreement or disunity or disharmony between the invisible God and the visible Christ. He is completely and fully authentic. This means with Jesus, what you see is what you get. What he says, he does. And what he does, he says. Because of that harmony, because of that authentic life that Christ lived, we can have that life. And and let's be clear, not just because he's a good example If Jesus was merely a good example of the authentic life, all it would reveal to us is how inauthentic we are. Looking at a good example doesn't empower us to embody that example. See, the beauty of this authentic life, the one that was in perfect harmony, also perfectly submitted to the Father's will and gave his life for yours and for mine on a cross. He exchanges his authentic life for yours and my inauthentic life. He exchanges his harmonious life for our chaotic life. He exchanges his perfect and righteous life for our imperfect and unrighteous life. See, contrary to popular psychology, authenticity may be about knowing and showing our true self at some level, but that true self is always and forever rooted in Christ. Therefore, the more like Christ you are, the more authentic you become. 
And the more authentic you become, the more like Christ you become. Why is this so important to understand? Two quick reasons. Socially and also theologically. Socially, authenticity is not then about being your true self as you have defined it for yourself. Authenticity is about being true to Christ. The outward life is about expressing then the lordship of Jesus and telling the truth to the world about who he is. Our primary concern then as followers of Jesus is making sure that we represent Christ well, not that we represent ourselves well. We don't confess self, we confess Christ, theologically. Authenticity is not about self-protection, but about self-denial. The inward life is about the lordship of Jesus. Therefore, our moral formation ought to be concerned about unseating any power or politics or preference which is not rooted in the vine of Jesus Christ and springs forth from a life of the Spirit of God. We do not believe in self. We believe in Christ. See, the inward and outward life only will find harmony in Christ. And so this is what we do as a people of God. When your life is disjointed, we don't just meditate on that, think about that, and work harder on that. We say, who is Jesus? What is he like? He's my center. If my external life seems like it's chaotic, I go back to Jesus' external life and look at his life. If my inward life feels chaotic and cavernous, I go back to the inward life of Jesus, his character, his love, and I center my life on that. Because only Christ is naturally and cosmically authentic. This is why there is power in confessing his lordship. This is why there is power in trusting his lordship. Paul teaches us that we are saved by this confession and belief when they are in harmony. We're justified by it. We believe what we confess and we confess what we believe. See, we find harmony between the inward and the outward life that God has called us to. We find authenticity in Jesus Christ himself. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, 